Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. And he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on him and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. God bless you. It is a joy and delight to my heart to be with you today. Um, this is my first teaching in, what, nine months or something like that? So low, set your expectations very low. And uh, if I'm a bit rusty, go easy on me. But it really is my honor. Tyler and I thought it would be fitting for me to teach one last time before we move. And so very grateful to be with you. And all I want to do with you this morning is just share one thing that Jesus has been teaching me and still is teaching me over the period of my sabbatical, all kind of based on that line we just read. Lord, I believe but help me overcome my unbelief. Does that resonate with anybody at a soul level? If there was a prayer for the era that we are living through, Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. 21 days in an isolated cabin up in Puget Sound, all alone. No phone, no computer, no devices of any kind. You literally turn anything electronic in when you check in. It's confiscated from you. No books. <laughs> the Bible is technically allowed, but that's the right word, allowed, with a gentle kind of warning not to co-opt it as a means of distraction from your pain. No alcohol, no more than one cup of coffee per day, no exercise, nothing to quote, discharge anxiety from your body. No contact with the outside world. You pack in all of your own food, you do all of your own cooking. Your one human interaction is five mornings a week at 5.30 in the morning when quote, your mind is more open to its unconscious. You have depth therapy for an hour and a half with a clinical psychologist and spiritual director, which is kind of like therapy, but without the happy ending part. <laughs> this program is over 50 years old. It has no name. It has no website. It has no sign-up sheet. It's all word of mouth. Very few people want to do it for obvious reasons. 
I've known about this program for years, and on my sabbatical, I finally made the space and time to do it. Now, I'm as far on the introvert scale as they come. I have a lot of, as you can imagine, silence and solitude in my rule of life. And in all honesty, I thought I would kind of crush it. You know, I mean, I've done like a teaching or 19 on silence and solitude. If you've been around, I'm literally like started writing a book about it. I thought I would enjoy, I mean, a 21-day digital detox, if nothing else, my nervous system is gonna just be humming, that sympathetic, parasympathetic thing, going to have it down. It was one of the most harrowing, painful, difficult things I have ever done in all of my life. Every single day, it took every ounce of willpower plus a hefty dose of the grace of God to not run to my car and drive home. This program was designed as an attempt to recreate the experience of what in the the Christian scriptures is called the desert. And I don't know about you, but I'm used to learning. I love to learn, but I'm I'm used to learning by addition, by reading books or hearing a teaching or podcasting. But the desert teaches by subtraction, by taking away, not by giving. In the desert, all of our coping mechanisms are kind of set aside. All of the cultural narcotics that we utilize to numb the pain of life, all of our escapist behaviors by which we run from pain, by which we even run from God or even use religion or even spiritual disciplines to hide from God. All of that is stripped away, and your soul is just laid bare. It's just you and God. Until you go into the desert, you don't really know what's in you. So much came up over those weeks from the substrata to the surface of my heart, and I just wanna share one thing with you that I was forced, a painful reality that I was forced to confront on my time of solitude. And that was just how much of the first half of my life has been run by this animating energy of fear. I had no idea. I knew that I was kind of more anxious than most. I knew that I was in a high-stress lifestyle. Not anymore, but whatever. (laughs) I was aware of all of that. But I had no idea just how much fear was in my body in my nervous system, dating back all the way, and I won't tell you all the details, to to my childhood. And on the flip side, because I can explain some of that away with, you know, psychosomatic stuff, but on the flip side, I became painfully aware of just how little faith I have, how much unbelief is in this deep center of my being. As most of you know, I'm essentially living through a freely chosen midlife crisis, (laughs) and... uh, just turned 42, I stepped down from the lead pastor role uh, to start practicing the way, and we're moving after 20 years in the city, this church in the city is all my family's ever known. And so as you can imagine, like you don't need to be a, like you can be an armchair psychologist. As you can imagine, pretty much any fear that could come up has come up. Now we all have fear that we carry in our body, regardless of your personality type or your story. Fear is the anticipation of evil. And God designed a fear impulse into the body itself as a survival instinct. It's really the love of God. It's designed to keep you alive. Studies have been done on people with brain damage who no longer have the capacity for fear, and the stories are not of bliss, they are of horror. They're not appropriate for me to share in a sermon. 
But psychologists distinguish between primary emotions and secondary emotions. Primary emotions are how we react in the moment to stimuli. So when you're walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden you're almost hit, you're on your phone or whatever, texting, hypothetical scenario would never happen to you, and you're almost hit by a truck driving by or whatever, what do you feel? You feel fear, like just this flood of fear in your body. That is not a conscious decision in your prefrontal cortex. That's just an automatic response in your nervous system. Fear, anger, happiness, embarrassment, laughter, all of these are primary emotions. And the Bible never shames primary emotions. Never at all. Think of the line in Ephesians 4, be angry, but in your anger do not sin. Read the Psalms. The Psalms teach us to pray our emotions to God, not to bottle them up, but to let them rip. All of them, anger, rage, jealousy, envy, doubt, shame, loneliness, and of course, fear. Because if we don't pray out our primary emotions, if instead we let them stay in and take root in our mind first and then in our body itself, they become secondary emotions meaning they move from a passing feeling based on external stimuli to a personality trait that is based on an internal makeup, the core of who you are, the result of some strange alchemy that scientists and spiritualists can still not totally figure out of attitude and habit and neuroplasticity and family of origin and life experience and all of the rest. For example, a primary feeling of hurt is turned into a secondary feeling or emotion of bitterness. Anger is turned into hate, sadness into self-pity, confusion into despair. The sign that a secondary emotion has taken root in you is you can't pray it anymore because it's who you are now and you need it to stay alive. The seven deadly sins of church history, which date back to Evagrius and the Desert Fathers, are all secondary emotions, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth, and so on. All that to say for me, the fear that came up in my solitude retreat, and in this season that I'm living through right now of what Scazzaro calls the confusing in-between, was not the healthy kind of fear that God put as a signal in my body. It was the secondary emotion, the deadly sin kind that is lethal to the soul. And I know from pastoral experience, just because I know not all of you, but a lot of you in the room, that I am not alone. And fear is arguably at the root of, maybe this is an overstatement, I don't think so, all of our problems in the spiritual life. Why? Because the telos of the spiritual journey is to become a person of love, as defined by Jesus. And it is written, there is no fear in love. As long as we need our life to go a certain way, we will, despite our best intentions, and most of, them have, most of us have them, we will act in ways that are unloving toward anyone and anything that gets in our way. Fear is at the root of all unloving behavior and at the root of all sin. And faith, at some level, is the ultimate solution. Early on in the pandemic, someone in the American South coined the phrase, faith over fear. What are you feeling right now? <laughs> it became a rally cry for an anti-lockdown, anti-vax, anti-government overreach movement and hence, more polarizing language in the culture wars. You may hate that language, you may have it on your bumper sticker outside. Your car is probably graffitied by the end of the afternoon because of where you are, but whatever. 
That's beside the point. I am not referring to where you fall on the left-right spectrum, but to how far along you or I are on the spiritual journey. The Catholic theologian and psychologist Benedict Groeschel summarizes the entirety of the spiritual journey in the Christian tradition as a decrease in fear and an increase in faith, as a gradual shift from what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount called anxious care, where you worry about this, that, you have to micromanage your life and control everything to keep it just how it, you need it to be, to this deep, genuine peace and trust in God, or faith. To that end, what exactly is faith, and how do we mature in it as apprentices of Jesus? The word faith is pistis in Greek. Pistis is one of a constellation of Greek words inside a semantic domain, just meaning kind of a range of meaning. Faith, belief, trust, confidence, reliance, allegiance, faithfulness. All of these Greek words and English translations of Greek words orbit around a center of gravity that is faith, which is best defined as confidence grounded in reality. Faith, contrary to popular opinion, is not a blind leap into the dark. The opposite of faith is not knowledge, it is sight. It's not believing something for which there is no evidence, but believing something based on evidence and living as if it is true. As the Quaker Elton Trueblood, who was the chaplain at Stanford, once said, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservations. Neither is faith a feeling, though it has an emotional component to it, and it is certainly not just mental assent, which was the fatal flaw of the Reformation, which redefined salvation as believing the right doctrines in your head about God. That did not work very well. Though it has to do with what we believe, but faith is an action. It is something you have or you do not have. You do or you do not do. You put your faith in God. And faith is at the center of our discipleship to Jesus. To the point you can summarize all of Christian spirituality as the faith. A practice dating back to the New Testament itself where Paul and others call kind of the summary of what we believe our faith. And Paul writes about those who have, quote, wandered from the faith and how we are all part of Ephesians 1 faith. But the first thing you need to understand about faith is that it isn't a religious thing. It's a human thing. We all live by faith. You can be here this morning as an atheist or a Darwinian materialist to the core or a Buddhist with no concept of a personalized God. You are living by faith just as I am living by faith because it is impossible not to. Again, faith is a sense of trust or reliance on someone or something. We need faith to navigate ordinary life. Very simple example. I have faith in this stage that we're what, three, four feet off the ground? I have faith that it will bear my weight, even though I put on a few pounds in COVID that I'm starting to get off, but it's slow going when you're 42. I have faith that it will bear my weight, and so I walked up on it. I put my trust in its capacity to bear my weight. Now, I don't know that for sure. I've not been down below here. I've not examined the wood. This old wood, this old building. Is it, does it have dry rot? Would it bear? I'm just trusting Matt Norman here in the second row from our board of directors who's also in contract. I'm just trusting that he did the due diligence and that the wood is good. And I have reasonable confidence in Matt and in our team and in the contractor that we use. Now, if I had no faith, would I be up here? 
No, I would be preaching from right down there and you would just see the top of my midlife crisis haircut. That's all, <laughs> all right? I would not have come up. If I had weak faith, I would have come up, but I would have stayed right at the edge, ready to jump off at a moment's notice and I would be distracted because I would be full of fear. But since I have a relatively strong faith based on, I think, reasonable evidence, I'm up here in the middle of the stage doing what I need to do and not even thinking about it. I have no fear at all. I have faith that my car will start after church and get me home. I have faith that my debit card will work when I order lunch. I have faith that my wife and children will be waiting for me for a Father's Day thing back at the house. I'm living by faith, and so are you, whether you are a disciple of Jesus or not. Even at the meta level of the meaning and the purpose of life, the question isn't, do you have faith? It's who or what do you put your faith in? As my neighbor said to me just recently, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, which is becoming kind of a new maxim in our city. I like that maxim because it's honest. It's saying I don't trust and have faith in God, I do trust and have faith in, it's misleading science, what it actually means is one particular interpretation of the data points of science from what's actually a minority of scientists. That's a whole other sermon. But at least it's honest that I'm choosing to put my faith in this interpretation of reality, not in this interpretation of reality. I'm living by faith. Here's the philosopher and social critic James K.A. Smith. The question isn't whether you're going to believe, but who. It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. Do you really want to trust yourself? Do you really think humanity is our best bet? Do we really think we are the answer to our problems, we who generated all of them? Hence, the invitation of Jesus is, not to put our, is to put our faith in him, in his life, in his teaching, in his gospel, in his death, his resurrection, and his coming return. Faith in New Testament theology is one of the theological virtues, along with hope and love. Theological meaning faith in the Christian sense doesn't make sense apart from God. And virtue meaning, again, faith is not just a feeling or a, a piece of mental furniture in your mind. It is the shape of your inner woman or man. Through apprenticing under Jesus, you become a person of faith, a person of trust and confidence in Jesus. And like any virtue, faith must be Developed, just like wisdom or patience or courage or fortitude. Faith is like a muscle. We grow it through a kind of resistance training. Like a baby, we all start weak in faith. And where we, have, we think we have a lot of faith, we're actually just really naive. That's actually not faith. It's just you're not, you, you're not very old and wise yet. And every obstacle we face is a chance to work out our faith muscle and strengthen our sense of inner peace. You see this on display in mature disciples of Jesus. They are incredible, there's a few in the room. There's not a lot. That's not an insult, it's just a statement of reality. But they are incredibly at ease. The word imperturbable comes to mind. They are some of the most relaxed, confident, joyful people you will ever meet because they live with this unshakable trust that everything will be just fine even if things aren't just fine. They have traveled the spiritual journey from fear to faith.
Now, what is the landscape of such a journey? I'm a firm believer in what I call spiritual cartography, which is just kind of like a mapping of the spiritual journey, the Christian analog to what secular psychologists and academics call stage theory or even developmental psychology. It's just an attempt to map the arc of discipleship over a lifetime in order to plot yourself on such a map and better name Jesus' warnings and invitations to you at each stage of the way. To that end, let me offer you a map for the development of faith. You could title this three levels of faith, since we're millennials and we love to level up, or three stages of faith or whatever. Now this paradigm is not chapter and verse, but I would argue you could overlay it over pretty much any biopic in scripture. If we had more time, I would do this. Job, Moses, David, Paul, take your pick. Level one of faith is the faith of religion. This is Job at the beginning of his story. My children party a lot, I make sacrifices the next day. It's Paul on the road to Damascus. It's where all of us start and it's not a bad place at all, the faith of religion. It's very good actually. The word religion gets a bad rap. It's used by a lot of Christians, particularly from the Reformed tradition, as a polemic against a particular kind of religion that is heavy on rules and regulations and light on relationship. Hence the maxim, it's not a religion, it's, not, it's a relationship, which is not remotely true, but it sounds very nice. But religion is best defined as a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and how we should live. By this definition, all people are religious. You can't not be. Your religion may be uh, Christianity, as it's come to be called, or what Howard Thurman better called the social activist, the religion of Jesus. Or it may be Islam, or Christian science, or politics, or social justice, or all things pride, or it may be your career. It could be any number of things. But in discipleship to Jesus, the faith of religion is essentially a way of relating to God that is based on quid pro quo. If I, you fill in the blank, then God will, you fill in the blank. If I put my faith in Jesus, then I will go to the good place when I die. If I tithe, then God will bless me financially. If I don't have sex before marriage, then God will bless me with a great spouse and an even better sex life, come on. In evangelicalism, the catchphrase for this first level of faith is biblical principles for living which are great. For the record, I'm all for biblical principles for living. Any attempt to live in alignment with God's wisdom and good intentions is fantastic. But left unchecked, biblical principles for living can become an attempt to use God and a kind of insider knowledge of his ways to engineer the circumstances of your life to your desired end, not his. It can become just another human attempt to minimize pain and maximize pleasure, just under the guise of, quote, Christianity. The book, this is book of Proverbs level faith. Now, most people don't realize that contrary to the novelist Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, remember that controversy like 20 years ago? There was very little controversy around the canonization of scripture, which is a academic way of saying which writings made it into the library of scripture and which did not. Early on, for both the Old Testament, as we call it, and the New, there was a wide consensus around which writings had that special quality and which did not, as well as a very stringent criteria. But few Christians know that one of the most hotly contested books that almost did not make it in was the book of Proverbs. Shocker, I know. Any of you grow up on like the Proverbs of a day? Any, any of that? 
I mean, dad used to say to me, this is Father's Day, he used to say, proverb of the day keeps the devil away. Um, which is, for those of you new to following Jesus, there's 31 Proverbs, chapters in Proverbs and 31 days and some months. And so there's a lot of people, uh, there's a tradition in, in, in particular in evangelicalism of reading the proverb of the day. And it's a beautiful tradition. Few Christians realize it almost did not make it in. And here's why. Here's why all the controversy was. If you read Proverbs as a book of general wisdom principles, it's incredibly insightful. Do you see a person skilled in their work? They will stand before kings. They will not stand before people of obscure rank. Diligent hands make for plenty. Lazy hands make for want. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Incredibly wise. But if you read Proverbs as a book of promises, they simply are not true. I know lots of really gifted, hardworking people that are poor and obscure. You know, lots of wonderful parents who are not perfect but did a good job and their children want nothing to do with Jesus. They work about, I don't know, 80% of the time. But that 20% will just kill you. At some point, this formulaic approach to God will let you down. A crisis will come and God will not rescue and save you from it. Or you will do the right thing and instead of being rewarded, you will be punished. Jesus said that would happen to you, not could, would. Or you will go through a period of pain and suffering and rather than the comfort of Jesus, you will just have no idea where God is in your life. It will feel like a dark night of the soul. When your crisis comes, not if but when, you have three options. Option one is you step back from faith. In more biblical language, you fall away. This is one, and it's very complex, and I don't want to touch on a tender thing here with cavalier heart, but this is one cause behind our generation-wide phenomenon of what we call deconstruction. One cause is that many people, in particular in American Christianity, never mature beyond level one, never mature beyond the faith of religion. And as Jesus said, quote, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The moment the formula doesn't work, God doesn't hold up, quote, his end of the bargain, it's done. Because they didn't actually have faith in God. They had just enough faith to get what they wanted from God. And when the cosmic vending machine didn't deliver, the faith was gone. Option two is you step aside and you compartmentalize your faith. You put God over here in this box away from the whole of your life and you just live with that incoherence. I mean, one of the things that's become painfully obvious to me, in particular in the last few years, is just the human capacity for living with incoherence is staggering. Like you take our city, one of the most secular cities, literally any elite in our city who is of the secular variety would ascribe to Darwinian materialism. And then you think about the resurgence of human rights and justice. The incoherence at just a pure intellectual level is staggering. That's a whole other like sermon series. But yet people seem like more than happy to live with, we just evolved by survival of the fittest, monkey eats monkey, and did you see, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Black Lives Matter. They can just live with that incoherence. Religion in this just becomes what Tozer called a dull habit not a burning flame in your heart. Option three, you can step back, you can step aside, or option three, you can step up to the next level of faith. 
That is the faith of desperation. This is the faith that's called for in a crisis when the direct intervention of God is your only hope, when the diagnosis comes and it's a death sentence, when you get the phone call and it is worst case scenario or at least bad news, when your prayer of years is unanswered, when the plan falls through, when the dream dies, when the relationship is over, when you are forced to admit it's all a failure in the dark night of the soul, as St. John called it. It's the faith of the man in the story we just read. He's at a breaking point. His son, can you imagine you fathers in the room? His son is demonized and he has exhausted every possible solution. He has no control. The biblical principle of train up a child in the way they should go is not cutting it. His only hope is a miracle. So what does he do? He goes to Jesus with weak but real honest faith. Doesn't have a lot, but what he has, he goes to Jesus with. Verse 22, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Us, notice the pronoun there. What does Jesus say? If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus is coaxing the man up to a new level of faith. He's calling on the man to believe in the power of God and the possibility of life in the kingdom of God. You see, as uncomfortable as I am with it, there is a reciprocal relationship between our level of faith and our experience of the release of God's power. Now, that, re that reciprocal relationship is not formulaic. It's not a magic charm. It's used and abused by all sorts of Christian traditions, but there is one nonetheless. John Wimber used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, meaning we have to risk. We have to, quote, step out in faith if we want to see God's power manifest. This man is risking heartache risking yet another wave of disappointment. Those of you that have been through something even at all analogous to this, and you get your hopes up and then they're crashed, and you get your hopes up and then they're crashed, and, you get, and at some point you just can't hope anymore. He's risking the social stigma in an honor-shame society. He's risking things getting worse. Who knows what this could activate? He's risking all of that in the faith of desperation. And in this story, there's a happy ending the boy is set free by Jesus. But just hypothetical scenario with me, what if he wasn't? What if this man's story ended like Jesus' story, where in his crisis, he prayed, Father, if it is at all possible, same word, take this cup from me. And heaven was quiet. And a few hours later, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sky was dark. You see, there is an even higher level of faith. Often people that talk a lot about faith and stir up faith and, and strengthen our faith are slow to admit that that kind of faith is beautiful. All levels are good but you're still not there. The highest level of faith is the faith of surrender. This is where you aren't believing in God for any particular outcome. You're just believing in God. It's Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. 
It's Job at the end of his story. My eyes have seen the Lord, and now I repent in dust and ashes. I'm done. No more questions. No more demands. I just, I shut up now, and I sit and I wait. It's Paul. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It doesn't mean you don't have desires for particular outcomes. All of us do. All of us desire to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. It means you're not emotionally attached to those desires. You see, the struggle with attachment is at the root of all of our fear. It is the ball and chain that is holding us in the prison of fear and back from the freedom of faith. As the saying goes, our anxieties reveal our attachments. Just meaning whatever it is that we're anxious about, that we have care about, that we worry about, that we toss and turn on our bed about, that we think about, ruminate about, obsess about, micromanage about, it reveals our attachments. Just meaning whatever it is that we think we need to be okay. The spiritual writer Anthony DeMillo said it this way, if you look carefully, you will see that there is one thing that causes unhappiness. The name of that thing is attachment. What is attachment? An emotional state of clinging caused by the belief that without some particular thing or some person, you cannot be happy. Attachment is not a desire. It's an emotional state of clinging to a desire. It's not wanting something. It's needing something to be okay. And our attachments, or in more reformed or kind of American language, our idols, same idea, promise us peace and happiness, but instead they give us anxiety and misery. Because all of our attachments can, and at some point will, be stripped away if not by a crisis or a betrayal or a failure or a global pandemic or a recession, then simply by old age and death. The paradox of Jesus' teaching is, as long as you need your life to go a certain way to be happy and at peace, you will never be happy and at peace. Not to mention, become a person of love. Therefore, One way to think of the spiritual journey in Jesus is as a slow burning off of our attachments to all that is not God. What our spiritual ancestors called purgation, the purging of our attachments. The final state of spiritual formation is what the ancients called apatheia in Greek. It's hard to translate into English. It's often translated peace, or serenity, it's, you know, I just think of it as that calm you see in the face of only the most mature disciples of Jesus. If you're familiar with ancient Christian iconography, that's what the artists are trying to communicate with the facial expression of Jesus and the saints. For example, here's Christ Pantocrator from the sixth century, still around in the monastery of St. Catherine in Egypt. So much of Jesus' art is based on this sixth century original. And for years, in all honesty, I did not like this because I thought Jesus looked sad and a little bit dour. And I imagined Jesus as like sorrowful, but also joyful and like fairly funny. But to view ancient Christian art is a cross-cultural experience. 
We have to come to it with a spirit of humility and curiosity. In America, we smile for the camera, unless if you're super cool, um, or in a band, or it's whatever. But America, you know, is about in the middle of the bell curve on the global happiness index, but we score at just about the top in emotional expression, meaning, and people mock us for this all around the world, meaning we present as much happier than we actually are. That's how our culture is. But even in our culture, less than a century ago, it was not the norm to smile for a camera or for a portrait. Like, look at pictures of your great-grandparents. They look really depressed and just... It was just, and they're in black and white, and they're like, their clothes are just so stifling. I mean, man, goodness gracious, smile a little bit. This is what the artist behind Christ's Pantocrator, he wasn't trying to communicate that Jesus was grumpy, but that he had reached the state of apatheia, this peace that comes on the other side of pain and suffering where the chaos is swirling around you, and you're okay. Another translation of apatheia is detachment, which is the opposite of attachment. Not an emotional clinging, but an emotional letting go. Detachment in the Christian tradition is a bit different, or actually very different from that in Buddhism, where the aim is the negation of all desire. In Christian spirituality, it's the reordering of our desire to, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Desire is not all bad in Christian thought. It's like the engine of our life that was designed by God to drive us forward. The problem is that after the fall, our desires are all out of whack. We either want the wrong things because our moral, like, you know, compass is so off, or we want the right things but in the wrong order. Dr. Robert Mulholland defined detachment in the Christian tradition as a deep inner posture of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservation. It is neither a passive resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuit order, called this posture of the heart indifference, or another, I think, better translation of his original Spanish word is freedom. It's a state where you are free, not of desire, but of the emotional need for your life to go a certain way to be happy and at peace. The first principle in his famous spiritual exercises is this. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, Success or failure, a long life or a short one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to God deepening his life in me. It's okay if you can't pray that. I can't on most days. But that's what we're aiming for. This is what St. John of the Cross was getting at when he said, to reach satisfaction in all, desire satisfaction in nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. 
or what his mentor, St. Teresa of Avalia, was saying with, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing make you afraid. All things pass, but God is unchanging. Patience is enough for everything. You who have God lack nothing. God alone is sufficient. This is the ability to calmly hold in your mind the reality of your life as it is, not as you wish it was or hope it will be as it is, and to be grateful, content, and at peace. This is the highest level of faith. Not believing God for the impossible, that's wonderful. Not believing that everything will work out perfectly and if it doesn't, quote, God has a plan. But believing that no matter what happens, even if things do not work out, even if, God forbid, my worst fears comes true, we have God and he's enough and we're okay and not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. So if we don't need to be afraid of death, then we don't need to be afraid of anything. We do not need to be afraid, period. How do we mature to this level of faith, to reach this state of apatheia? Well, we mature in two basic ways, just a few closing thoughts, through what our spiritual ancestors called active spirituality and passive spirituality. Active just is not theological language, it's psychological. Active spirituality is where it feels like we take the initiative, like it's our part in our spiritual formation. Passive spirituality is where it feels more like God takes the initiative and it's his part and we just have to say yes. At an active level, there's a few things we can do to grow our faith, to kind of exercise our faith muscle, muscle and to grow into higher and higher levels of faith. Just a few thoughts. One is step out in faith, risk, trust God for something. It can be as major as quitting your job and moving your family or it can be as minor as, man, I just have this thought as I'm like ordering my coffee and I just feel like maybe I should just share this word or encouragement with my barista or even smaller, right? I mean, it can be anything. Just step out. Whatever comes into your mind that you feel may be a prompt from the spirit, risk, take the next step. Willard was once asked how to become a saint and he just said, do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Second, practice gratitude. Gratitude. I hope you start your day this way. I hope you end your day this way. I hope you live your days this way. Gratitude is one of the best ways to overcome fear because gratitude is the, pre- the practice of being present to the goodness of God in the moment, whereas fear is the feeling of anxiety over possible evil in the future. The more grateful you are, the more grounded in the here and now you are, the more you realize how good your life before God is and the more you grow in faith. Three, get around people of faith. There is a social dimension to faith. Jesus said of his home village that he could do no great miracles there because of their lack of faith. Living in a secular city like Portland is very hard on your faith. Hence the need to come together in a decent-sized crowd on a Sunday to strengthen our faith. Finally, ask God for more faith. Let the man's prayer become your own. Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Meaning, Lord, I have a low level of faith, but I want a higher one. Grow my faith, God. Faith is not just a muscle that we develop. It is a gift that we receive. And then just wait. 
Just wait, so much of our life is spent waiting. So much of the spiritual life is about how to wait well. And one of the greatest signs that we have matured in our faith is the ability to calmly wait for God to move in his time. And then there's passive spirituality. What in scripture is called the test of faith. But this isn't a test like in school where you study hard and if you study hard and you're smart enough, you fill in the right answer and you get a good grade. As the saying goes, in school you get the lesson and then you take the test. But in the school of life, you get the test and then you have a chance to learn the lesson or not. That's why none of us get a 4.0 in life. It's impossible. We all fail. The test of faith is more like a stress test the way engineers test a plane or a car or a new piece of technology, or the way a blacksmith tests a metal in the fire or a chef tests a dish on the stove. It's a way to test the integrity or strength or quality of something to see what it's actually made of, how much strain can it actually take, is it ready to go public? Less for God, he already knows all that's in our heart, but more for us, we often don't. When our faith is tested, what we actually believe comes to the surface. We may think we don't need a lot of money to be happy until the stock market crashes and we lose it and then we discover what's actually in our heart. We may think that we don't get our our identity from our work until we lose our job or we transition or whatever and all of our fears and insecurities come up. We may think we love our children as they are until they don't follow our pre-written script for their life and we get angry and afraid. Our family went through a very painful experience recently that I'm, I'm not at liberty to disclose the details of, but we had come to believe, as you know, that, um, that our time here in Portland was done and we had a plan for what we really felt God had put in our heart to do next. It had been there for many, many years and we felt the timing was finally right, there was an open door, and I was just full of excitement about it. And then at the very last minute, I've never been like, through anything like this in my life, but all of our plans fell through and in a heartbreaking way. All through the discernment process, I said every single day, like God, just your will be done, we wanna do what you have for us, show us, you know, we're your servant, all of that stuff. And I genuinely thought I meant it. Like I believed my own press release, you know? Until my desired outcome fell through. And when my faith was tested, I realized I don't actually want whatever God has for us. I want this particular thing that I really think God should have for us. And the moment it was in jeopardy, I was stricken by fear, and when it went away, I was shattered. My faith was nothing. My face was nothing like Jesus in that artwork. It's been a hole in my experience. People keep asking, how was your sabbatical? And I feel so bad, I just like smile and nod, because what they all want me to say is, it was like the best time of my life. I was in Hawaii, I went to Africa for a month, and we did, and there was amazing moments. Marriage is the best it's ever been. Family's the best it's ever been. Love Jesus more than I ever have. But it has been such a difficult time in my life. It is just, been a whole new layer of the false self, exposed, and it's ugly. That line Tyler used a couple weeks ago from Keating, the spiritual journey is not a success story, it is a series of humiliations of the false self. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Exposed, stripped off, burned, and set free. 
and has called for just a whole new level of surrender in my life. And that's really what following Jesus is all about. If you haven't figured that out yet, it's, he was really up front, take up your cross, but we are often slow to believe that. It's best that you figure that out as soon as possible. It's all about surrender. How do we grow in our faith the same way we grow in anything with Jesus? One, we surrender. We just let go of our attachments. We still have desires, but we let go of the need for our desires to come to pass, to be happy and at peace. And two, we stay faithful to Jesus. Even when we're in the confusing in-between, when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when all we see is darkness, we continue to put our trust in Jesus, our good shepherd. This is where the Reformation's definition of faith is either mental assent to doctrine or later in evangelicalism as a feeling of assurance. It's done great harm. Daniel Berrigan, the Jesuit priest and anti-war activist, was once asked, is faith in your head or in your heart? He said, neither. Faith is where your butt's at. (laughs) Although he was a bit cheeky and did not use the word butt. It's, quote, inside what commitments are you sitting? Within what reality do you anchor yourself? While what we believe in our mind, please hear me, and feel in our heart are of great importance, grave importance, at the end of the day, faith is where your body is at. Faith is about faithfulness. Feelings come and go. Thoughts get arranged and rearranged. Faith is about faithfulness. It is about staying true to Jesus and living inside the contours of your commitments to him and other people and watching his plan for your life unfold in his time. And whatever comes or does not come, waking up, giving thanks, and being